Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome to Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm super, super excited today to have Inkla Onstead as our guest. Inkla is a professional artist and opera singer um, and performer. She still has an active career, uh, and she also is a therapist and a board-certified coach. I'm particularly excited about this because you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, why do we have an opera singer on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast? Well, we're going to dive into that and you're going to be pleasantly surprised. She's also the owner of Courageous Artistry, and I'm super uh, excited to dive in and start talking with her. Welcome, Ingela. Thank you, Davina. I'm so excited to be here. So tell us um, a little bit about Courageous Artistry and what you do now so we can sort of put it in the right frame of mind before we go back and sort of dig into your journey to get here. Sure. Let's not leave your audience hanging as to why an opera singer is on a law podcast, right? (laughs) I founded my coaching practice, Courageous Artistry, because I believe that we are all performers in some way, shape, or form. And we all have areas of our professional lives and our personal lives as well in which we need to perform. Yet many of us are not taught these skills. So for example, when I'm working with attorneys, they have an immense body of knowledge and so much training under their belts. And um, what oftentimes they're missing or what I know that a lot of people are missing, unless it comes very naturally to them, which I think those folks are rather few and far between, is how do we present ourselves to the best of our abilities? So we could sort of you know, put this under the umbrella of public speaking in a way. Um, or performing. And uh, we all need to learn how to be courageous artists within our own lives, because as an attorney, many of you know your, your clients and people you've worked with in the past and yourself as well, I'm sure, have been put in situations where we have the knowledge we need and the preparation we need, but then suddenly our system, our body and our emotions and our mind goes haywire. And we show up to an event, whether that's in the courtroom or in client negotiations in a job interview, perhaps even giving a speech somewhere, presenting something. And we realize that we um, that all the knowledge and preparation didn't necessarily help us. And we walk off that stage or out of that courtroom feeling like, oh my gosh, I didn't present myself the way I wanted to present myself. And that can be from a physical or vocal standpoint, but oftentimes it manifests as anxiety within the system. And then the anxiety sets off a domino effect and affects how we are able to speak, how we were able to stand, move our bodies in the space, whether we can make eye contact or not, whether we can focus enough and stay concentrated enough, which also interestingly has to do with anxiety, to remember the salient points that we're going to make. I, I definitely have had that experience more than one occasion, having having a situation where I, you know, I thought I was prepared for something and then and then somebody was present that took me by surprise and I start having that anxiety attack and the meltdown and everything that you, I thought I was going to say didn't come out the right way. Yep. So I, I know what that is like. Um, and there are many, many ways uh, an, that attorneys experience that. Before we get into that, because I definitely do want to dive a lot deeper into that topic, I want people to get to know a little bit more about you and how does an opera singer 
wind up being a therapist and a board certified coach? What was the journey <laughs> there? Did you always know that you wanted to be an opera singer or did you grow up in that environment or, or how did yes, that come Yes. I always knew I wanted to be an opera singer. I always knew I wanted to be some type of classical singer within the realm of opera. There's also concert singing and, and I, you know, it's, it's sort of, you are trained as a classical singer and you end up doing a lot of opera. Um, so when I was younger, all I wanted to do was sing and I wanted to go to school for singing. And I was always um, interested in classical music over popular forms of music. Um, and so I went to college and got a bachelor of music degree and I moved to Germany, uh, Germany, which many, um, people don't know is, uh, a hub of opera. It has many, 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 I mean, dozens upon dozens of state funded opera houses and theaters. And so it's really a great place for opera singers to work because you can be hired as an employee. You have benefits, you have paid vacations. It's a very uh, humane way of, of doing the arts. So I moved to Germany and I lived there for a decade and sang opera. And then some things changed and shifted in my life. And I decided to move back to the States in my early thirties. And I got a master's in voice because I was sort of biding my time, figuring out what do I want to do next? Do I want to go into the realm of teaching voice and uh, becoming a professor? Um, I had already been teaching private singing lessons for a very long time, but I soon found that wasn't really where my heart lay. And so I decided I'd always been interested in psychology and I'd been sort of that person in my uh, community and group of friends and family that people would confide in. People would say, oh, I have to talk over something. Oh, you should go talk to Ingela. She, she's a good listener. She gives good advice. So I uh, enrolled in a master's of uh, mental health counseling, master of arts in, in mental health counseling to become a therapist. And I found I really loved it. And uh, it really suited a whole other side of my skill set. And something that I had um, noticed when I was in all of my years as a professional full-time musician was how often it would happen that I would see colleagues in rehearsal. Everybody would be singing beautifully, feeling calm, doing fine. And then we would start amping up to the you know opening night. And you would see certain colleagues in dress rehearsals and rehearsals that were much closer to the premiere start to really crumble. And I could tell right away, it had nothing to do with their vocal technique. It didn't have anything to do with their training or abilities. It had to do with their mind and their emotions and how that was manifesting then. So I would see this all the time and think to myself, oh gosh, I wish, I wish so-and-so could get help with this because he or she is such a gifted artist and they're really not able to show anything close to their best when they get on stage for those first performances. So for a long time, I had been pondering this topic. How do we deal with our anxiety? What are ways in which we can support ourselves? And I sort of left that to the side. I became a therapist, thought I would just work with a quote unquote, regular, normal population of people, which I did for many years. And then I had people in the arts community that I know because I, I still perform actively, uh, call me late at night, text me late at night. Hey, you know what this is like and you're a therapist, help. And I started seeing a real need for helping people with stage fright and performance anxiety. And I looked around and saw there's not really um, official sources of help that we can go to for this. Oftentimes we go to mentors and they might give us some good advice, but they're not trained in this. So I just saw a great opportunity to combine my two greatest passions and skill sets into a coaching practice that could work with 
um, all sorts of professionals. So first I started working with performers because that was the my market and where I had most of my connections and network. Right. And then it just so happened as these things do, you know, things sometimes sort of come and fall in your lap in a way. I have uh, in my uh, life here, a lot of friends who are attorneys, actually women attorneys. And a lot of them would say to me at cocktail parties or parties are out of the blue. Oh my gosh, your skills would be so useful for attorneys too. So it had been kind of percolating in the back of my mind. And then the universe just kept speaking to me loud more and more and more loudly. And I shifted um, my business to work with all sorts of different professionals. So I've helped, you know, people in um, the corporate world prepares speeches, you know, for, for their company. I have helped attorneys with all sorts of different things, job interviews, courtroom presence. Um, I have contracts with different, um, you know, the public defender's office here in my state to do different trainings on things like how do we be confident and well-spoken and make a connection over Zoom? Because that's a whole other thing as well. It's not just about the technology, but how do we connect with our clients or show up in the Zoom courtroom? So uh, it's been a really fun way to expand my business. And I find that the skill set that I've been working on with myself and my own performing and with performing artists applies just exactly directly to all other humans. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> We're all very similar when it comes down to it. And that especially, um, I think within the law community, I think, uh, it's very, this is a community filled with very high performing, very high flying, very ambitious, very intelligent people. And oftentimes those types of people do not like to admit to something like anxiety, right? Because it might make them feel vulnerable or it might make them feel like somebody is going to jump in for the kill if they were to admit to something like that. So I think a lot of people are suffering silently. And I know there's been a big movement in the attorney world over the last few years, a big push and movement for more well-being, wellness, um, addressing substance abuse, right? All of these things that you're starting to see as CLEs and such. And so I love to see how my skill set sort of fits into that uniquely. And um, it's just, I, I love this work. It's so much fun to do with people. Right, right. Uh, and it's, it is so, so needed because um, one of the things that I think we often don't consider when we go to law school is there are, some people have very definite ideas about it, but a lot of people wind up going to law school because, you know, they have this vision of what it means to be an attorney. And there are all different kinds of ways that we can be an attorney. And we might find ourselves heading down a path that is not suited to our nature and that's a lot of times where that anxiety can crop up. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One, um, I remember being, uh, when I first started uh, as an intern, I was, doing, I was asked to participate in litigation. I was working for a state attorney's office. And the anxiety was so overwhelming for me to be the only one. And it's, it's tough enough in law school when you, you know, you're suddenly, you're the only one out of a couple of hundred people that's speaking and the room is quiet and you only hear your voice. But then when you get into a courtroom, it's the pressure is huge. And I actually had, I had a therapist at the time who sent me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist put me on uh, a medication. She's, I want you to take this just before you go into court. And I want you to see how calm you are and how you perform when you're calm. And it was amazing because it felt wonderful when I was, had this medication, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so calm. And I performed tremendously um, and did a great job, but the, the anxiety and the nerves were so overwhelming. 
and unfortunately for me, the medication gave me such bad migraines after, or I would have just wanted it all the time because it was right. so, had such a profound effect. So I, I couldn't take it, but um, it allowed me to see what can happen when your anxiety and your nerves are calm. How is it that you help people deal with anxiety? Because like you said, anxiety doesn't have anything to do with intelligence or the level of preparation or any of that, where do you think it comes from? And what kinds of things do you do to help your clients with that? Yes. Well, um, just to touch very quickly on what you were talking about with the medication and thank you for, for sharing that with me. Um, many people do rely on medication for these things. There's a whole class of drugs called beta blockers, which lower our blood pressure. And so when we're anxious, our blood pressure raises, our heart rate raises. And so these drugs can be very effective, but I also like to point out to clients, well, what if like you mentioned, what if the drug stops working for you or has a side effect that you don't like? And also, I think sometimes people would love to just make sure that they have extra tools in their toolkit. So you can use a uh, performance enhancing drug, you know, as it were, um, for the courtroom, for example, and also have skills and tools to help manage your anxiety. And I think that when these skills and tools are coming from within us versus an external source, like a pill, I have nothing against medication whatsoever, big supporter of it. Um, however, it's so much more empowering. It puts us back in the driver's seat to have some skills and tools. So just to give a brief primer on really what anxiety is, um, because we don't, we don't oftentimes understand it. And I find that just understanding the basic mechanics of anxiety can give people a lot of feelings of, um, normalcy, like, oh, I'm not crazy for feeling this way. It's just the way a body, a human reacts. Well, right. back in paleolithic times, we were faced with a lot more, um, life-threatening situations, right? And uh, if we look around in the animal kingdom as well, there exists the uh, function in our nervous system that we all have heard of before from biology class of fight, flight, or freeze. Sometimes nowadays people are adding on fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, sort of to placate is another aspect of that. And what happens there is that our brains are constantly scanning our environments without our awareness for threats or dangers so that if somebody were to burst into my room right now, my system would emit a bunch of adrenaline and cortisol and other um, stress and sort of action hormones to uh, start shuttling more blood flow to my limbs to get me ready to fight or to run. It shuts down my digestion somewhat. It uh, sends our heart rates uh, racing, of course, to help pump this blood through our body more quickly so that we have more energy. That's why we feel oftentimes sweaty and nauseous and twitchy. But also another really interesting aspect that I think isn't as well known about fight or flight is that when we are in fight or flight, our prefrontal cortex, which sits up here behind our forehead, it's the most evolved part of our brains. Of, it's the most evolved part of all brains in the world, including the animal kingdom. It's the most human part of our brain. And with it, we can do wonderful things like use reason and logic and remember things and craft arguments and stay focused. Well, when we're in fight, flight, or freeze, the prefrontal cortex loses blood flow. And the limbic system, which is oftentimes referred to as our lizard brain, which is the oldest, most ancient part of our brain responsible for our fear response, 
gains blood flow because it's going into animal mode to just protect us, get us out of the situation. So you spoke a little bit about, you know, um, nerves hitting you and then feeling like you couldn't present your arguments well, or feeling like things are fuzzy or foggy. And people often say this when they're anxious, I can't think straight. I feel, I feel so distracted. My brain feels so fuzzy. Well, it's just very natural. So what the main problem is here, however, to sum it up is that we are no longer for the most part, living in a world where a wild animal is about to jump out at us. Yet our brains almost haven't evolved to the point where they can recognize the difference between uh, the dangers, quote unquote, of a the courtroom versus the dangers of the wild. So many of our nervous systems still react very strongly to those danger stimuli in our environment. And then I'll also add to that, which is a, another very important aspect for folks to understand, is that we are social creatures and had went back in cave people times when we were running with smaller tribes, had we been rejected from our tribe or had we lost social standing, we could have either been cast out in the wilderness and left to die alone and not able to protect ourselves because we needed the help of a group. Or had we been, um, sort of uh, downgraded in our social standing or demoted, we would have lost access to resources and mates. So this, I think, is another really big piece that is often an aha moment for folks, is that we can tell ourselves as much as we want, oh, I don't care what other people think. But that is to deny our own biology. We do care and we are meant to care because we are also meant to live in community and meant to be connected. So when we walk into a situation in which we are feeling somewhat threatened, there's that social component, there's that biological component. It's so important for us in the world to be able to feel good about ourselves, to have a sense of esteem, to have a sense that we are able to reach our highest goals. And so when we walk in there and our anxiety um, has been set off and all of these different things happen in the body, we're not really able to present ourselves like we can in the comfort of our own homes or our own offices or with folks with whom we feel comfortable. So there's that social factor, that biological chemical factor, and there are, and I'm sure we'll get to this, many things that we can do about this, but just telling ourselves don't feel that way or criticizing ourselves for feeling that way, which is oftentimes the go-to, especially for very powerful, intelligent people. Why do I feel this way? Why can't I control this emotion? And that's just a dead end street. That that question, line of questioning leads nowhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do want to get into some of the things that we can do, but before we do that, I want to talk about some other places that we as women lawyers might feel anxious or Uh, business owners, or just professional women in general. And one of the things that comes to mind is so many, uh, so many of my colleagues uh, do not like to network. And what, what we traditionally consider networking, going to a cocktail party or an event and talking with people and having the opportunity to talk about our business. And it can cause a lot of people a lot of anxiety. Uh, But another thing I I think that is happening is because we've had this couple of years of pandemic, we're we're finding more and more um, just among discussions that I've been involved in and what I've been hearing is that more of us and and reading is that more of us are, uh, it's like we've lost those social skills, what little bit we had anyway. (laughs) And, And so we're even more reluctant to 
leave the comfort of our home and everything is set up. We're able to communicate through technology and, you know, it, it, it's become more and more difficult. And a lot of people are saying that it's going to be a challenge. Um, I have two nephews in college and they're freshman year in college. And I see that they don't have so many of the opportunities I had when I was in college at that age to be around other people. So much is still occurring online. And so they're kind of, you know, in their dorms or in their apartments with their roommates, you know, whatever friend, they're both living cities where they don't have, you know, friends. And, and so we're seeing kind of a, a struggle, you know, one of them naturally, they're twins, one of them naturally has a more social personality, but the one who does not have a more social personality is really struggling to develop some of those skills um, because of the, the added anxiety, you know, of, not practicing certainly. them, you know, certainly. are you seeing a lot of that? Are you seeing those kinds of things with clients more or has the pandemic affected what you're seeing with in terms of working with your clients? Oh yes, Davina, very much. So you're making a, a very good point. These things weren't always easy for us even prior to the pandemic, but we were accustomed to them or uh, to use another word, it had been normalized to us. So although we may not have always liked it or enjoyed it, we were in the mode of being able to do it with the sort of requisite self-talk and skills that go along with it, right? So if you're attending a network event, networking event once, twice a month, they're going to a cocktail party and meeting new people, and you've been doing that consistently, it's, it's becomes normalized to us. We're able to cope with some of the anxieties that come up and the little bits of social anxiety that we all have to a varying degree when faced with new situations. And then, you know, kind of tying this back to that um, fact that I mentioned before of our brain constantly scanning for threats. Well, we've all been isolated and there's been this threat of a virus floating around and we don't know whom it's going to hit or how and how it will affect us. So our brain has a whole new, very large threat to deal with. And then we, if we think about all of the after effects of the coronavirus. Um, so I would say in many ways, our nervous systems are sort of tapped out right now. We're, we're so tired and we're so, um, our systems are so exhausted of living in this kind of low level to high level anxiety all the time. We are seeing people access mental health services at record numbers. We are seeing all of, all of the bad statistics go up for anxiety, depression, suicide, substance abuse, overdoses, all of those things, car accidents also, interestingly. Um, so, so yes, it's this, it's this, um, we were already challenged by this, but maybe we didn't recognize that it was a challenge because we were used to coping with it. And then you take a big pause. And I'm seeing the same thing with my performing artists. People are going back to the Broadway stage, back to the stage of the Metropolitan Opera. These are seasoned artists who have done this their entire lives. And they're coming to me and saying, why does this suddenly feel so scary to me? And part of my job is to teach them tools and skills to help them cope, but also just to normalize and validate their experience of course, this feels this way. If we hadn't, I don't know, uh, ridden a bike in a few years, and then we got back on, we'd be a little wobbly at first too. We'd probably be slightly anxious. Do I still know how to do this? What is this like? Will I get hurt? Um, so I think it's the overall societal anxiety coupled with the fact that we've had a break from all of this. But I do, to your point, feel very sorry for the younger generations because they're losing out and I think this is happening, you know, in law schools as well, right? People are maybe graduating from law school and still working from home. 
oftentimes as attorneys, and people are losing out on community and connection. And that's actually one of the most important factors that can positively influence our nervous system. When we feel connected, when we feel a sense of belonging, that is a very, very significant way to calm our nervous systems. And a lot of us have been missing that. Right, right. Absolutely. I also think in terms of with with attorneys, um, you know, you mentioned speaking, public speaking, and uh, obviously court, and you mentioned Zoom. And one of the challenges for small business owners of any kind, but for women's uh, law firm owners, is so much of the connecting and engaging with other people right now is done through social media in addition to Zoom or, or these kinds of video conferencing, but social media is where a lot of people are connecting with prospective clients and their best referral sources and they're involved in communities and discussions. And so there's a need for those, you know, for those of us advising about marketing, we may be talking about becoming more visible. Um, I know with my clients, it is, uh, I, I try to make sure that they're fitting whatever they're doing with their personality, with where their clients hang out and also incorporating a team um, to help. But a lot of times we may be required to be more visible. And I, and I know for people I'm and as my audience knows, I'm always talking about, it's like I'm in my fifties. So I feel a little bit older. Like I, I, I was recently reading an article and they called women on over 50 dino babies. It was oh IBM. My word. Was, How offensive. IBM, <laughs> IBM was threatening to, you know, uh, they had secret memos going around to, you know, get the dino babies out of oh, there. Oh my goodness. And, and they were talking about women over 40, actually. So I was like, I'm a dino baby, obviously, but I am, you know, I'm on Instagram, for example, and I have an Instagram manager and she's always telling me, you know, you need to do more reels. You need to do more reels. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like, first of all, yeah, it's not yeah, really sure. <laughs> yeah. but secondly, it's not, a, it's not something that I feel naturally comfortable doing because I didn't grow up filming my life. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, and, and being, a, and I posted something about the other day and somebody said, Oh, typical attorney, you're overthinking, you're overthinking things. And I, we do, a lot of us do overthink things. Um, have you, have you had clients talk with you about sort of this this push to be more visible, to be more out there because of social media, to put more of their lives out for people because of social media and the impact of that on them or, you know, what their experience is. Oh, yes. Um, Very much so. And you and your audience may be surprised to learn that it's not just um, people who are in generations who didn't grow up filming themselves, which I I belong to that dino babies too, then Davina. Um, It's also some of my younger performing artists. And that might give people pause. Like, why would a performer have trouble filming themselves and putting themselves out there? Isn't that the same thing as stepping onto a stage or stepping into a rehearsal? But here is where I like to um, help people also understand, no, it is very much different. And it doesn't matter how much sort of on-screen confidence you might have in a rehearsal. Even if you're a a TV person, I don't think you necessarily... um, that this necessarily comes naturally to you. What happens here in in my best estimation, and I don't think there's enough research on it because this is still such a relatively new phenomenon, but when we are putting ourselves out there on social media, that fear that we feel walking into, let's say, 
courtroom, client negotiations, uh, you know, public speaking, we can actually see the people around us for the most part, right? Some faces might be obscured by, by heads or taller people, but we can see and our nervous system can take in what is going on here in the room. We have so much richness in the room for our bodies to read without us even knowing we're doing it. So we can, you know, look around and we can give our quote unquote performance and we can look around and we can kind of sense how it is landing or arriving. We can sense the tone and tenor of the room. We're just, we feel more secure. And even if things don't feel great to us, it's a known quantity. Uh, It's a known environment. And even if we don't like it, we know what it is. Well, add a tiny little camera that's filming me and me putting myself out there. And I struggle with this too on Instagram, on TikTok, whatever it may be, our brain, I think, hasn't evolved enough yet to handle the giant question, which is who sees this? How will they react? We can cope if, if it's real people in the room not reacting well. We've been through that before. We can't, our brain can't cope with all of this unknown. And I think what our, what our brain does is it wants us to avoid anything that's too risky for us. Because once again, it's still sort of stuck in those paleolithic times where we weren't maybe getting enough calories in the day. And our brain needs 20% of our daily energy, which is a lot considering all of the organs in our system. So our brain is tremendous at figuring out when to avoid danger, avoid risk, avoid um, scary new things, because it thinks, ooh, if I go do that scary new thing, I might have to expend too much energy. And then I might not have enough energy left over later and we might all starve and die. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's still very, uh, very primitive in the way it handles some things. So our brain actively wants to find excuses for us to avoid doing these scary, risky things because it's not sure if we can survive it. Now, of course we can. Could it possibly have um, negative effects on our mental health if, if we're trolled on social media or if we have a, an abusive mean comment? Of course. But um, there's something about the unknown of putting ourselves out there and having no idea who's going to see this and who's going to judge this that gives, I think, most of us pause. So you're not alone in this. Your clients are not alone in this. My clients, even the young performers are not alone in this. With many of them, I have to do a lot of coaching around how to put ourselves out there on social media in a way that feels good to us and learn to build our skills to cope with the resulting anxiety that comes up when we put ourselves out there in that way. In fact, I've, I've taught a whole workshop on it before. You really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah even, and I think to myself, even, you know, even for performers or people who naturally perform it or whatever, you're, you're, you're being that it's you, your thoughts, your point of view, it's not a script. It's not a play. It's not somebody else. And you're the producer, the director, the whatever, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, uh, you're holding up and, and I'm sure with a lot of performers, you know, there, it's still a team when you have a performance going on, you know, that it's hundreds of people involved in a show or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're paying your part, but when you're, you know, doing a reel or a, a TikTok or something, there you are putting yourself out there and everybody's, and, and you mentioned the key word, I think, and that is judgment. And that is this belief that uh, we are going to be judged. And there's a belief in there somewhere that other people's opinions matter in our lives, matter more maybe than our own, mm-hmm. matter, matter at all. And um, 
I'm always working with my clients about sort of working through that fear of judgment um, because does it really impact the day to day of your life? And, and, you know, certainly there are some cases where things do, but um, I once had someone say to me, you know, the people who can accept the most judgment are the people who rise to the top, top levels of our society. And they used at the time, it was uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton because they were running for president. And they said, these two individuals can accept an incredible amount of judgment and continue to put themselves out there. And I thought that was a really, and I, whether, you, whether you like or hate any of them, I'm not, I won't go there, but uh, I have strong opinions there too. But uh, you just, you look at your celebrities and your, you know, the stars and the, politicians, and there are people who can really uh, handle a lot of judgment and keep going forward. And are there things that we can do to develop that kind of thick skin? You've heard that sort of thick skin, you know, about people. Are there things that we can do to develop that for ourselves to be able to take a little bit more judgment and not let it upset the apple cart? Yes, most definitely. And I think a lot of us just have this ingrained belief that somehow we're just stuck the way we are in how we handle this. Oh, I'm just like that. That's just how I am. I'm such a, and we use these negative labels and definitions for ourselves without recognizing that the brain is the most amazing organ on earth. And it is what they call incredibly plastic. Meaning if we challenge it, if we challenge it to grow and we're faced with challenges, we can learn new ways of coping with them. I mean, to your point about the presidential candidates or anybody who's in the public eye like that, it also makes me think of athletes and I work with some athletes as well. These are all people who, if we looked at it from another direction, we might be able to call mindset experts. Because if they were not able to have a really strong mindset and really strong coping skills around this, they would crumble. There's no way a human can be so visible and then allow themselves to feel so vulnerable. We have to build up some inner strength. And when I'm coaching with clients, whether it's in sort of intensive form, or this is probably more long form coaching work that I do with clients, we do a lot of um, uh, mindset work and kind of taken from the area of um, psychology called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for short. It's a very uh, popular form of therapy. It has a huge body of empirical research to back it up. And it is, I find incredibly effective with very high functioning people and people who consider themselves to be smart and intellectual because there's a lot of um, teaching and learning and it's just a, a sort of toolkit that we build. But essentially what we're doing there, spoken in very plain language, is we are identifying negative thought patterns of which the brain has probably tens of thousands per day. The brain is hardwired for negativity because it's uh, going to better ensure our survival if it is always watching out for dangers and making assumptions that something is dangerous and bad. So it's just sort of how we're built as our factory setting. So that means we have to do a lot of work. We have to really focus and, and, and put some effort into changing some of those negative thought patterns. So if we think about thought patterns, it's almost like a, a groove worn deeply in the brain. And if we put a, you know, a wagon on a, on a dirt road, the wheels are going to find the grooves that they've been running in all of these years. It's going to take some effort to jump those wheels out of the groove and create a new groove, but it can be done. 
So what we do there is we find and address negative thought patterns or negative self-talk. Sometimes I refer to it as garbage thoughts. And we're especially looking for the ones that don't benefit us whatsoever. And also, P.S. Most of those negative thoughts about ourselves or about the world are not based in true fact. They're opinions that our brain has come up with and our brain is really clever and it has convinced us that those are true. It's almost like when we practice a thought over and over and over and over again, it becomes a belief and we hold very tightly to that and it becomes a deep part of our identity. When we can identify these negative thought patterns, then we can go about changing them into something more helpful. And I, now I'm, I like to be clear, I'm not talking about positive affirmations. Those can be helpful for some people. I would say, generally speaking, positive affirmations might work well for the small slice of the population that is naturally sunny and positive and optimistic. Now, we know for, also from research that this doesn't necessarily apply to the attorney population. Attorneys, when they've done a lot of testing and research, are found to be pragmatic, more on the pessimistic side, which oftentimes also equates with realistic, right? An attorney has to be really excellent at imagining all of the eventualities, all of the negative outcomes that could come up, and then designing a strategy to, to conquer that, right? So when our brains are programmed to always be looking for the bad, this can take a little bit of work. And a positive affirmation, especially for, I think, somebody like the attorneys I work with, at least, they're not going to buy that. They're going to go, this is a load of bunk. Why would I say that? I don't believe it. And your brain literally will not believe it. Your brain literally goes, that's BS. I don't believe most of the you. Attorneys, most of the attorneys I know can't even say it, not sarcastically. Like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> yes. It'll, be very, it'll come out very sarcastic in a very sarcastic way. Right. And it's sure, considered to sure. maybe be kind of fluffy or sort of new agey or sort of self-healthy. And that's not, you know, generally speaking, I don't like to make large generalizations, but that doesn't really fit in with, with the population of humans on this earth who are, feel called to practice law. And, and rightly so, it doesn't have to be their bag. So what we do in replacing these thoughts is we just create something that is more neutral or more helpful or a little bit more supportive. So for example, in the case of somebody who has a lot of nerves when entering the courtroom, maybe we can identify a thought pattern for them that is something along the lines of, I'm so terrible at this. Why does this always happen to me? Everybody knows that I'm bad at this. I'm so embarrassed. Um, I, I made a fool of myself. I'm gonna continue making a fool of myself. I'm not good at this. Well, when we think thoughts like that, we cannot help but have a negative emotional effect. That does not feel good in our emotions and in our body. So what we might do in a situation like that, if I'm working with somebody, is help them design a thought that they actually literally need to practice and write down and practice thinking to reprogram. Perhaps it's something along the lines of, while I might not be good at this yet, I'm sure I can get some help and support and become better in time. So we're not lying to ourselves and saying, I'm great at public speaking, because once again, the brain will just go, that's, that's a lie. Um, and we're not uh, allowing the brain to continue practicing the bad, negative, unhelpful patterns. We're just creating something that creates a little bit more space, a little bit more hope. It's shifting the mindset from a fixed mindset of I'm bad at something and that's the end to I could become better at this or another, you know, something, another thought we might practice there is I'm actually good at this and this aspect of public presenting, but these are the other aspects that I would like to improve. 
And just as if we're talking to children, we don't want to say you're bad at something and you suck. (laughs) We want to say, you know, this wasn't your best work, but I bet if you apply yourself and maybe use some different study strategies next time, it could be a lot better. So we want to always be using helpful, encouraging language in education with our children and with others in our lives. Yet we turn around and to ourselves, we use the most degrading, offensive, negative, demeaning language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely find that to, to be the case when we're talking, when I'm talking with other women law firm owners is how, how quickly we can, we're, we're our own worst critics. You know, and I think uh, anytime you have anyone in sort of a uh, a high achieving profession, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with being in a high achieving profession. Somewhere, somebody along the way praised us for our high achievements. And so we wanted to create more or somebody demanded it of us or something. So I think it, it can go along with that, that idea that we're as a high performer and a high achiever, there's an expectation that we have for ourselves of perfection, of being the best, of of the world falling apart if we don't do something well. And of course, it's a it's a really unreasonable expectation to expect that you know you're going to do you know everything well. I'm always uh, telling my clients that you really truly are not the best person for every job in your business uh, because. It is, you know, is the belief of most attorneys that, well, you know, we're smarter than the average bear and just given enough time, I could figure this out and I could, you know, sort of willpower or power my way yeah, through it or knowledge through. my way through it and all that kind of stuff. But when it, but it's, but then we get tricked by these darn human emotions that don't listen to our reason. <laughs> darn it. I know it's so inconvenient. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you know. I do want to talk a little bit before we run out of time. You have made the distinction in your materials on between therapy and coaching. And I think that's very important. And I want to discuss it here because I think it will really help people sort of understand that I, I'm a business coach, but business coaching, when I say business coaching, it is really around business and, and strategy and mindset around business and that kind of thing. And, uh, but as, anyone who's done any coaching, you can see how quickly you can get sucked into um, a, a, call, a calling for therapy, you know, with somebody sitting there. And I remember when I first started doing this, I really just wanted to help people grow their business. You know, I, I, I don't want to fix people's, you know, childhood problems. Right. And, uh, and it was the, the line was a little murky. I find myself getting into conversations and then I'm like, uh, I finally just said, okay, I've got to create a boundary around this because I'm not equipped, qualified, nor do I have a desire to be someone's therapist. And I have uh, referred clients to therapy um, as a, as a result of that, but let's help um, our audience listen, listening. If they're deciding, you know, I'm going to hire a coach versus do I need a therapist? What, kinds of things they need to think about? What is the difference between therapy and coaching? Where is that line? Yeah, that's a great question, Davina. And I actually wrote a whole blog post about this that's on my website, um, Courageous I read it. Oh, great. (laughs) This is the one you're referencing. Yes, because I have to be especially careful 
that I am being very clear about the boundaries between therapy and coaching. I want to maintain my professional license as a therapist. And as you know, as it is similar in law, we can only practice in the state in which we are licensed. So I live in New Mexico, which is a beautiful state, um, but it has a very small population and it doesn't have a high population of performing artists, which is where my business first started out. So I thought, how do I use these skills, but in a way that is legal and ethical within my scope of practice, yet still being able to reach more people. So then I turned to coaching and through the organization that um, licenses therapist, I was able to get a special board certification as a coach so that I'm legally protected. And I've, you know, done training and an exam on the differences between therapy and coaching, because I don't want to be practicing therapy with my clients either. Now, do things get personal? Do we sometimes get into that territory? Certainly. But for me, I can tell very quickly when I'm meeting with a prospective client because of my therapeutic background, whether they need my skills or whether they need therapy. And one of the main identifiers for me is, I am very clear about explaining that therapy is often very useful to heal from past experiences and to gain greater insight and understanding into our personal patterns, how our family of origin and upbringing affected us, so that we can be functioning at a reasonable level, sort of back at our baseline. So oftentimes people go to therapy because they've recognized that they've dipped below their their normal baseline of functioning or or well-being. And they say, I don't feel like myself. I am anxious. I'm depressed. I'm this, I'm that. I'm struggling with a relationship in my life. I need help because I'm not at my normal level right now. Um, And that's great. And that's very necessary work for many people. Now, the way we view things in coaching is I view my clients as whole and complete just as they are. Many of them also have a therapist on the side and use me as a coach because it's two different things that we're doing. And what we're doing is we're looking to see where are you at right now and where do you want to be in the future and how can I help you get there? And obviously, through all of my skills and tools, I can design strategies for them. I can customize things. I can also sort of set the boundary when I say, you know, this feels more like therapy territory that we're talking about right now. So I would really encourage you to bring that to your therapist, or let me help you find a therapist. If you don't know how to look for one, or if you don't know what might be good for you, let me give you some suggestions and resources to figure this out. But yes, coaching, as you well know, is an unregulated profession for better or for worse. Anyone can call themselves a coach. And, um, you know, there are many coaches out there who have very little background in in um, psychology whatsoever, right? Executive coaching or business coaching, right? You're teaching a, a whole host of skills and tools, very tactical things, strategy in order to improve somebody's business. But we can't take the human out of the room, right? Things come up. And many times we find, I think, as coaches, that we're working on somebody's, ostensibly, we're working on somebody's business, or I'm working with them on their public speaking skills. And what we're finding is one of the things that's holding them back is some very deep wounding of I'm not worthy to do this, or who am I to be so visible? And this, I think, especially affects us as women, because perhaps some biological reasons, but very much societal and cultural reasons of how we are socialized to make sure everybody around us is happy and comfortable and never to shine too brightly because it might threaten others. So I love the phrase full of oneself. Like if a client says, oh, but doesn't doing that just kind of come across as I'm so full of myself. 
And I say, yes. And if you think about that phrase, it's a beautiful phrase to be full of myself. What could be better than that? Right. So, so yeah, I could, I can totally see how for you as well, things get blurry because you build a trusted relationship with someone and they feel comfortable telling you about things that maybe you're not equipped to handle. So I'm, I'm glad that you've been able to feel like you can develop some strong boundaries and some referral sources. Right, right, right. It's definitely, it's definitely an area where you can very quickly get slip into slip into that. And I know it's something that coaches discuss a lot um, in coaching organizations. How, how do we draw these boundaries? So I thought it was very interesting when I read that and you being a therapist and a coach that, you know, exactly, you know, sort of what that is like. Um, yeah. The lines are probably right, even blurrier for me. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, before we wrap, well, especially since you're dealing with anxiety, mm-hmm. right? When you're dealing, you're dealing with emotions. I mean, some of my clients may have a feeling of anxiety around doing some things or, or, you know, but knowledge oftentimes helps in terms of, you know, well, let's do this or let's try that. And that yeah. will help. So we're not digging into exactly, you know, what we're not what digging into an anxiety disorder, anxiety for example. Is, yeah. That, you know, and with yours, I imagine it's you're focusing a lot on the specific scenario where anxiety occurs, right? Sure. As sure. opposed to looking back to, okay, I'm an anxious person. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. that's something I need to discuss with a therapist to sort of figure that out. Right. Is that happening more globally in my life or is it more isolated? I find for coaching, it can be better if it's in an isolated area of our lives. Oh, I'm anxious about public speaking. I'm anxious about building a business. But yeah, if somebody has a lot higher than normal, we all have anxiety, right? It's a human emotion. We can't avoid it. But um, uh, such high levels of anxiety that they're not able to function as they would like to in many areas of their lives. That's sort of a a good red flag to say "Mm, therapy might be necessary here. You there. Exactly. All right. Before we wrap up, is there any final thought you kind of want to leave with our audience? Uh, if they maybe sort of experience this kind of performative anxiety or emotions around it or, or whatever they feel that they can do a better job or yeah. Whatever I would yeah, I, I would really advise, uh, and of course, you know, I, I can't help but be biased here. I would really advise that they get some professional help with this, either from a therapist or from a coach like myself, because I think what happens with very intelligent people is they feel, and this sort of goes back to your point before, they feel like they should be able to figure it out on their own. They feel like, well, I'm smart and I've gotten all these accolades and I have all these fancy degrees and, and uh, you know, atta girls in my life. Why can't I figure this out? There must be something wrong with me. Maybe if I just put my mind to it, I can figure it out. Or maybe I can just bully myself into not being anxious. Maybe I can just tell myself that's stupid to feel that way and I shouldn't feel that way. And why do I feel that way? Neither of those are going to work. We all need to be, I think, very realistic about what is our area of expertise and what is not our area of expertise. And your clients come to you because they are experts in the law, but they are not experts in building a law business. And they weren't taught that in law school. They need some help and mentorship around that. And this can be, I have worked with people sort of in emergency fashions before where a friend will call me late at night before a big company speech the next day, help, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. And I have taken multiple people in my personal life through a quick list of things. Okay. I want you to try this. I want you to try this. I want you to try this. I want you to do this before the speech. And it's not, um, it's a band aid, but 
uh, the feedback I've gotten has been so incredible. Like, wow, Ingela, you taught me just a couple things. And I went in there feeling so much better. And, um, you know, we can get even deeper and more impressive results in a sort of VIP coaching session or longer term coaching, but just, just to recognize whether it's listening to podcasts on mental health or anxiety, whether it is, um, consuming, you know, free content that's out there, um, whether it is reading a book about it, whether it is consulting with a therapist, we can learn to deal with these things and we shouldn't have to deal with them alone. And imagine where we could be if we could get some help, just like you do, I'm sure with your business owners, if you can get some help, you can fast forward the progress here. You don't have to continue to struggle with all of this and figure it out on your own. Sometimes the DIY approach is just not what you need. You need, you need another professional to hold your hand for a while and show you the way. Um, and to your point, I think I, uh, I know for myself, let's speak for myself, but I'm prone to intellectualize a lot. And so I'm a, I'm a challenging client for a therapist or for a coach <laughs> because I already have the age I am in life, plus all the life experiences I've had, the education I've had, I, I know a lot of the things that people are going to say to me. I know them in, on mm-hmm. an intellectual level. Sure. Um, and I think a lot of us, that's where we sort of struggle asking for help or getting help is that, well, I already know what you're going to tell me. I already know what they're going to say. I know they're going to say that I'll just, you know, I just need to do this or that or whatever. But what I have found as somebody who has had therapists and coaches throughout my life at various stages for different reasons is that even though I know intellectually, I, I'm, there's a, an emotional part of me that is not picking up what I'm throwing down and some, and other people, it's just like, it's just like when you tell your spouse over and over again, you know, this is an issue. You need to work on this. It's an issue. You work on, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. And then they, somebody randomly says to them, you know, you should do that. And they're like, oh my God, why am I thought <laughs> we do that to ourselves as well, even yes. though we know intellectually, somebody can phrase something in a way or reframe it in a way that you're like, huh, well, I hadn't thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's why it's so important to open ourselves up to other, if we expect people to hire us as experts, as attorneys, we certainly need to be willing to do the same thing and realize there are a lot of other people out there that may have information that we don't have, <laughs> even though we read the book about it. Right. Yes. Um, it's a, it's a real trap to fall into, isn't it? When we live so much in the intellectual space, we think we can fix everything with our intellect. And you're right that oftentimes I think, especially in the attorney population, I see the artists are more feeling and emotional as we would sort of as- expect from the stereotype and the attorneys and other professionals are very used to functioning from the neck up. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I thank you so much for being here. Tell us if somebody wants to reach out and get in touch with you and maybe work with you. I'm assuming you're virtual. You work with people all over. Yes, uh, all over the world. Wonderful. Okay, so why don't you uh, give us your information? We are going to include it in the show notes, but is there any place in particular that we need to know to go to to find out and connect with you? Yeah, you can uh, go to my website, which is just courageousartistry.com. And there's a contact page there. And you can join uh, my newsletter, my mailing list, if you're interested in other things that I'm doing out there in the world. 
Um, you can also contact me directly. My email address is ingela, that's I-N-G-E-L-A, at courageousartistry.com. And I am also on Instagram and Facebook, both at, at Courageous Artistry. And I just started, speaking of uh, on-screen confidence and making reels, Davina, I just started a TikTok recently. So I am at Courageous Artistry on there as well. So people can find me in pretty much all the spaces. Also LinkedIn, although I, I don't spend a ton of time there, just under my name, Ingela Onstad. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So we'll definitely have to watch out, watch out for your reels and yes, and, and see you performing uh, in that, in that arena. Yes. Uh, so appreciate, we appreciate it so much. Eagle, it's been really a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for being here. Oh goodness. My pleasure, Davina. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the League in the coming year, including the exclusive million-dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, Go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash leave. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash leave. Leave is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.